this week on Hope for the Broken. How much time do I spend building my image? The things that we choose to do, the things that we choose to be a part of, is that not kind of a part of that? How much time do I spend on the perception, what people perceive of me, versus how much do I spend upon what's happening in my heart? For God, the most important thing is not the appearance, it's what's happening inside. And so therefore, you and I must give priority to developing character within our own hearts. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Life Lessons. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part 12 titled, Seeing as God Sees. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're in the middle of a teaching series that we've entitled uh, Life Lessons as we are seeking to learn from the example contained in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we're going to study the entire chapter, chapter 16, in a message that I've entitled Seeing as God Sees. And so I want to invite you to turn there with me. You know, we are all drawn to underdog stories, aren't we? We love the story of a victorious, unlikely uh, winner. And in this uh, time of the year, March Madness is a perfect opportunity for us to to witness those kinds of stories. How many of you guys are paying close attention to March Madness? You guys filled out a bracket? Anybody filled out a bracket? Your bracket's probably terrible. It's probably busted if you did, uh, because there's been some great upsets so far this year. Uh, Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, number 16 seed beating the number one seeded Purdue, right? We love that. We love that story. What about Princeton? All those smart dudes up there, uh, beating Arizona and Missouri and Florida Atlantic. I didn't even know that was a university, but it turns out there's a university, Florida Atlantic University. They're in the final four. And so we love these stories of these underdogs becoming victorious. We're drawn to them. Uh, the unlikely team winding up in the final four, the unlikely person being chosen. That's, that's heartwarming to us. And what we have in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is a story of an underdog. This unlikely David chosen to be Israel's next king. And so we'll see God's strategy in the selection. We'll see uh, David's selection and we'll see then his service. And that will be our outline. And then we'll talk about two life lessons that we learn from this passage here this morning. And by way of recap as to where we are in the story of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel has grown old and the people are demanding a king. And so it was not the right timing for a king, but God gave the people the desires of their heart and he gave them King Saul. And it turns out that Saul started off good, and then he made some key compromises, and then he had a great collapse. And the people are reeling now from that collapse, and God has rejected Saul, and the search has begun for his replacement. And the unlikely David will become that replacement. Now, something right off the bat that I want to to put uh, in our minds this morning as we study 1 Samuel chapter 16 is that we often get the wrong subject in this chapter. 
We often want to put our attention to uh, David, right? Uh, and we think that this chapter is all about David. Or, or we'll say, no, it's all about Samuel, learning to see as God sees. Or we'll, we'll say it's all about Saul, and now he's having to be replaced. This, this chapter has nothing to do, although those characters are in this chapter, it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with God Almighty. And that God is sovereign and that his working, his plan comes to fruition a hundred percent of the time. And so it is the Lord that is the subject of this chapter of study. So with that background, let's study 1 Samuel 16 by first looking at the strategy. The strategy following God's rejection of Saul, the search for the next king of Israel began and he communicates his strategy to Samuel in verse 1 of chapter 16. Let's read it together. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, I, I think this is very interesting, because at the close of chapter 15, you have Samuel confronting Saul with all of his crazy deeds, holding him accountable, calling him out. You would think Samuel would wash his hands of Saul. I'm done with you. God has rejected you. I'm moving on to what's next. But that's not the position that we find Samuel in. He's grieving. What is it that Samuel is grieving here? What I think is happening in the context of this passage is that Samuel is grieving the whole scenario. I think he's taking a look at it and saying, my heart is breaking. My heart's breaking because the people no longer trust God. They demand a king, and that king is severely disappointed. And here we are yet again. And I think he's grieving over the backdrop of the culture of his land. And it challenges me with a question. How often do I grieve over what's happening in and through our land? Does it really break our hearts? Does what breaks God's heart break our heart as well? And I think that's exactly what we see here in Samuel. It's interesting. Let's keep reading. God tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This is the strategy. The next king is coming from Jesse's family. So Samuel, get your supplies ready. I'm sending you on a mission. Jesse, by the way, if you want to keep track of the chronological order in the pages of the Old Testament, is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And notice this time that God says, I have provided for myself a king. Saul was the people's choice award winner. David will be God's choice. This time, I've selected a king for myself. Verse 2, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, surely he will kill me. Now, we can understand Samuel's fear, right? I mean, Saul is on the throne, and Samuel is being sent on a mission to actively find Saul's replacement. And Saul had grown to be this arrogant, uh, prideful man, and surely if he had heard what Samuel was up to, he would have Samuel killed. And so we understand his fear. But here's the thing that I learned from this, this arrangement here. Anytime we attempt to carry out God's plan in our life, guess what we're going to encounter? Resistance. There's always an obstacle to being obedient to the Lord. You know why? Because there's an enemy that wants to thwart you from being obedient. 
And so we'll always find resistance. There's always a hurdle to overcome in pursuing the Lord's plan for our lives. And so God is strategic yet again. Here's the strategy. Let's keep reading. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So God gives Samuel a task that would help mask the real reason for his trip. Now, it's important to understand, God is not asking Samuel to lie. He's simply providing a reason for him being there so that Saul would not have any questions to it. Samuel, what are you doing going to Bethlehem? Well, I'm going to sacrifice there. Oh, go right on ahead. And so God is in this strategy making a way through the obstacle. Verse 4, Samuel did what, what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peacefully? Now, Samuel is a very godly man, right? So why would the people be afraid of Samuel's arrival? Well, I think there's two reasons why they could possibly be afraid. The first is, is that the typical offering of a heifer was to atone for a capital offense, a murder. And so if he's coming, bringing a heifer alongside him, guess what the people might be thinking? Did something happen? Did a grave crime happen in our community? Oh no, so they're trembling. A second reason, I think a more likely reason for the people to be trembling is for what happened at the end of chapter 15. You remember, God told Saul, I want you to wipe the Amalekites off the face of the planet. Wipe them out of existence. But Saul didn't do it. He held on to their king because he wanted to parade him around to, to make him look really good and to strike fear in the other nations and fear within his own people. But Samuel said, no, God asked you to, to exterminate this king. And so Samuel takes matters into his own hands. Now remember, Samuel's advanced in age. And he takes out his samurai swords and goes to town on King Agag. And so word has gotten out. Samuel's a bad man, right? And he's come to town. And so they're nervous. They're, they're probably trembling here. So Samuel needs to, needs to quell all fears. And in verse 5, he says, Samuel says, I come peacefully. I, I, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And so therefore, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, if you're new to Bible study, and by the way, it's okay if you are, because we all are new to Bible study at some point, right? That term consecrate might say, well, what does that mean? Because that's not used in our modern vocabulary. What does consecrate mean? Well, to consecrate was an action of preparation. To, to prepare yourself for what the Lord was about to do. Now, in biblical days, uh, they had to do certain things in order to become uh, ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. And so, therefore, they had to consecrate themselves. That involved taking a bath, which was a really big deal. It involved putting on new clothes, clean clothes, and to avoid and abstain from certain activities and certain things. And so, Samuel asked the people, I need you to consecrate yourselves because the Lord is about to move in our midst and he's about to give us clarity. And so this is the strategy of finding the next king of Israel. Now let's look at the selection, the actual identification of Israel's next king. 
Once Samuel arrived in Bethlehem, now it's the time to throw a party, have the sacrifice, and to identify this person. Now, are there any bachelor or bachelorette show fans in the room? It's okay. You can admit it, right? It's a safe, safe place, right? Trust tree. All right, I saw a couple of hands. I'm with you, okay? Uh, but, but Bachelor and Bachelorette, it's this show, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, where the single guy or the single lady is looking for the love of his life or her life, and, and they choose from a laundry list, right, uh, of people. And so I kind of picture the Bachelorette whenever I read this, right? I know I'm a horrible person, uh, but this is what's in my mind when this happens, okay? So let's pick up the story in verse 6. When they came, he, being Samuel, looked upon Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. (laughs) Eliab must have looked like a king, right? Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, but a man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here Samuel is. He's enamored by Eliab. Why? Because he looks like the part. In his own human wisdom, Eliab looks like a king. But Saul did too. And Saul turned out terrible. And so this is beginning to look like Saul part two. And as a result, God says to Samuel, the way humans look at things is completely different than the way in which I look at things. God was not looking on the outward. He's not looking on what was presented before him. He could see past all of those things, and God can look intently into the heart. And by the way, if you trace Eliab's story throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you find out that he becomes a very egocentric, uh, arrogant individual. Again, it would have been Saul, part two. And so it's not him. And this process repeats multiple times. Uh, Jesse had brought seven sons to the party, and at each one, God said, not him, not him, not him. And then he works his way through all of the sons that were there. And Samuel had a problem confronted with. None of his sons, none of the, the men that came before him was the chosen one to be Saul's replacement. And so Samuel's problem was this, either I've misheard God, or God told me wrong, right? Have you ever been there? Like, God, you said, go to Jesse, and it's one of his sons, but you also said none of these sons. So I've either misheard or you've told me wrong. But Samuel trusted the word of the Lord. Can I tell you something? It's always, always, always the right thing to trust God and to take him at his word, even when it doesn't make sense. And so it led to Samuel asking a follow-up question. And this is what he says in verse 11. Then Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? Right? It, it couldn't be that God is wrong. And I've heard with absolute clarity that it's none of these. You've got to have another son, right? Let's keep reading. And he, being Jesse, said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And so Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, 
arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, for us to understand this characterization of David, we've got to understand it in the original language. Uh, The word youngest is also a word that can be translated as the smallest, right? So what, what I believe and what most scholars believe that I read this week believe that David was the runt of the family. There's no possible way that David could measure up to his brothers, hence why his dad never even thought to invite him to the party, right? This is not even possibly an option. He's the runt of the family, and then we're told that his, he's, he's ruddy, which means red-tinted hair or bronze complexion. Think a red-haired, freckled-faced little boy, right? That was me, by the way, growing up, right? So, uh, so this, is, this is David. It also says that he has beautiful eyes. Now listen, if, if that's the only compliment that you could come up with somebody, you know they've been hit with the ugly stick, right? Like you got, you got beautiful eyes. And then we learn that he's handsome, right? So in the original language, when you piece all of this together, this is what this means about David. He's the runt, cute little boy, and that's all he'll ever be, right? That's the portrayal of David. And that's the person God picks, right? So, so this is completely uh, far from being kingly. In fact, David was so small, so far out of consideration that his own father didn't even invite him. And we learned that he's keeping the sheep. You know whose job it was to keep the sheep? Servants. Uh, All of his brothers were like, David, this is a man's deal. You're just a cute little boy. Go do boyish things. Let's let's let God handle things with with the men, right? And that's kind of the situation here. But David was who God had selected. You know, this kind of scenario repeats itself time and time and time and time again in the pages of the, of the Bible. I want you to think about it. God chooses the humble offering of poor Abel, not the rich offering of Cain. God blessed the young Jacob over the manly Esau. God used stammering Moses over the slick-talking Aaron. And in 1 Samuel, God chose to use barren Hannah over fertile Penina. God often chooses unlikely people to do his work. You know why? Because when he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, who gets the glory? Where it belongs? God. And so God often uses unlikely people to do his greatest work. So my question is, is what is it that distinguished David in God's eyes? What was it that, that David had that his brothers didn't have? Well, I think we got to go back to verse 7. The Lord sees not as a man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so David's heart, his heart was different. And we later learn that David is, is known for what? Being a man after God's own heart. So the heart of David is what qualified him to serve in such a capacity, which what led to his selection. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went back to Ramah. In these days, Samuel would have anointed David by pouring the entire horn of oil 
over his head. Now, there are occasions in which church members ask our elders to pray over them. Maybe it's a specific uh, spiritual thing that they're walking through. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis. And we take the book of James literally. It says, "Those of, if, if, is any of you sick? Let him call the elders of the church together that they may anoint you and pray, with you, pray over you that you may be healed. And so we, we have a little bit of, of olive oil. There's nothing fancy about this olive oil, by the way. It, you could fry an egg with it, right? There's nothing special about it. Oil, when you are anointed with, usually what I would do is I would take the, the little vial and put it a little bit on my thumb and put it on the person's forehead. And, and what I always tell them is this, is that the oil, is there's nothing magical about this oil, right? It's to symbolize the presence of God in your life, right? When... When Samuel anointed David, there was no little dabble, do you? Right? It's, I'm going to pour the whole thing over your head. And then he would wipe his head with it. Right? And, and the, the oil would just saturate his hair and would begin to seep into his pores. And it was highly, highly symbolic. What was it symbolizing? It, it was symbolizing that the fact that the, the Lord is entering into David, setting him aside for a special act of service. And so this anointing was a very powerful display. And what's more is it was done in front of his brothers. Right? Can you imagine that? Like I almost see David going, what's up now? Right? And his brother's going, what in the world is happening? This is not the guy who needs to bat laid off, right? This is not the right selection. What is God doing? It's very symbolic, and so we see David's selection. We've seen the strategy. Now we've seen the selection. Thirdly, let's look at David's service. It was not yet David's time to sit on the throne. Time had not come yet. Saul was still there, and as we're going to see, then he becomes a servant. In Saul's court. But here's the thing that you need to know about chapter 16. There is a gap in time that is fast forwarded between the close of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14. Because when you reconcile chapter 16 with the rest of the story in 1 Samuel, you'll see that it skips over a lot of uh, things that happen in David's life. And so this is some sort of a fast forward. It kind of skips in the plot, so to speak. And, and so there's actually a lot of time. A lot, a lot of scholars have no earthly idea how much time passes. Uh, many believe that it's years, a long period of time. But we know that following Samuel's anointing, David returned to being a little old shepherd. But God was working a plan. And he was guiding David's path. And he was leading him at the exact time that he needed him to serve in Saul's court. Look at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, this is confusing to us as we read this, isn't it? Why would God send an evil spirit, a harmful spirit, to torment anyone? Right? The word translated in my Bible, harmful, is the same word that can be translated as evil. So is, is God evil? Does God do things that are evil? It's, it's a really good question. So what's going on here? Well, I want you to picture this, that God has allowed 
a very distressing spirit to fall upon Saul. He's probably battling a lot of anxiety. We would probably look at this and say, this man is depressed. Right? We would say he's got some mental challenges that he's working through. Right? So this is kind of the condition that Saul finds himself in. And it is the Lord that allows him to fall into that place because he is guiding and directing this plan. Remember, this chapter is about God and his sovereignty. And he's sovereign. He's working his plan. Look at what happens in verse 15. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. Now, when you think lyre, think a guitar-type instrument. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, that person will play the, the lyre, the guitar, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, this is a really good idea. Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And then one of his servants... One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Well, isn't that interesting? Who happens to be skillful in playing? The liar. He's also a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech and a man of good presence. But most importantly, the Lord is with him. And so therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son who is with the sheep. Do you see what God is doing here? You see the sovereignty of God? Keep reading, verse 20. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, to his, David, his son, to Saul. Now, here, you know, that whole verse right there is, is probably Jesse giving the materials to send David off to Saul. So it's like sending your kids to college. Right? Here's luggage. Good luck, right? That's what's happening here. Verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer, a very important position. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. You see what God's doing here? God has chosen David, a shepherd boy. He's now worked to the point to where Saul needs him. And Saul brings him close. And David will learn the role of a king by serving under King Saul. God working his plan. What do we learn here? Two life lessons I want to mention to us today. First is this, always trust God's sovereign plan. The Bible is clear. God has a plan for you. He has a purpose and a plan for your life and for mine. The scripture tells us, for behold, I, he knows the plans that he has for us, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper us, to give us a hope, to give us a, a future. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. You need to trust that God is working his plan, even when it doesn't make sense. I want you to put yourself in David's sandals for just a moment. Here's a young man who was just anointed, proclaimed to be the next king of Israel, and he's sent back into the pasture to tend to sheep 
for years? <laughs> if, if I'm David, I'm going, uh, Lord, did I miss something here? What was that that just happened? Are, are you sure that you didn't miss something here, Lord? What's the deal with this timing thing? Right. Are you even doing? God, are you there? So many questions would flood my mind if I'm in David's sandals. But there was no mistake because God was working behind the scenes. I think that God was purposeful in sending David back to the sheep for a period of years because God often uses the wilderness of our lives to prepare us for what's next. We fail to realize that David needed pasture time. David needed wilderness time. Think about how God used that time in his life. It was while he was tending sheep that he honed his skill with a slingshot. Hmm. That's going to come in handy the very next chapter when he defeats Goliath, right? It's also in the wilderness that he was able to practice the liar. Get really good at it so that he can be summoned by Saul. David would also become a very famous songwriter. It was in the wilderness that David penned some of his most powerful psalms. Psalms that you and I read today to find solace and comfort amongst the craziness of our lives. It was while tending sheep that David developed courage. We learned that he had to fend off a lion and a bear to protect his sheep. It was also in this time that David learned humility. You'd think being anointed by king and then going to have to clean up after sheep, that'll humble you real quick. It was in the wilderness that David learned to care for people, how to take care of a flock. And he learned to trust God's plan even when it didn't make sense. Here's the point. David's years keeping sheep were not wasted time. They were training time. David became a great man. He became a great king over Israel. And one of the reasons for that is because he never lost his shepherd heart. God was taking what seemed to be a wilderness season in David's life and using it for a purpose to shape him, to mold him into the man that Israel needed. And the same is true for you and me. Perhaps you feel like you're in the wilderness of life right now. Maybe you feel like you're in a dead-end job. Maybe your wilderness is a struggle in your marriage. Maybe you're asking God, wondering, what plans do you have for me? Where do you want me to go? Maybe your wilderness is some sort of suffering that you're enduring. Or maybe your wilderness is something completely different. But whatever it is, know this. The wilderness that you are in, God is leveraging it for what He has for you. Don't waste your pasture. Don't waste your suffering. Be faithful right where God has you right now, knowing that somehow He is working something in you so that He could do something through you. The point is that you need to trust God's sovereign plan. He's at work. That's life lesson number one. Life lesson number two. Character is of most importance. 
The selection of David as king is a lesson to us in what matters most. When Samuel was looking for what looked kingly, God was raising up a true king. And David was the least likely candidate, yet he was the one God had chosen, not because of his looks, but because of his heart. And God tells Samuel, he teaches the great prophet a lesson. He said, Samuel, there's a limitation to your own wisdom. There's a limitation to your own intuition. There's a, there's a limitation to your own ability. You cannot help but look at the outward appearance. But God does not have a limitation here. God can see past the outward appearance and he can look straight into the heart. And the heart is what mattered most in David's case. It is God that has the ability to discern the secrets of a man's heart. Now, I think the quick conclusion we would jump to with regards to this is, is the, the, the proverb, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Which I, I think that there's some wisdom there, right? We're often quick to judge people or cast judgment upon them when we don't truly know them. But I think there's something deeper here, right? In God's eyes, the outward appearance, the presentation of an individual mattered smedric. It was their heart that truly mattered. And, and as I'm reading this, I'm, this is what I'm thinking. How much time do I spend building my image? Right? You think about it. The, the posts that I choose to make on social media, what's the motivation there? If I'm honest, some of it's to portray this image of who I am or who I want people to think that I am. The things that we choose to do, the things that we choose to be a part of, is that not all kind of a part of that? And so here's the conviction part for me. How much time do I spend on the perception, what people perceive of me, versus how much do I spend upon what's happening in my heart? Right? For God, the most important thing is not the appearance, it's what's happening inside. And so therefore, you and I must give priority to developing character within our own hearts. Right? And, and I, I fall woefully short here. And here's some questions that I've been asking myself this past week, and I'll continue to ask myself. <laughs> if, if God, when God examines my heart, because God can see straight through any appearance that I have built upon you, and he can see my heart, what does he see? I mean, that's kind of that's scary, right? How much time do I spend investing in my character? Do I prioritize character in my evaluation of others? I think these are important questions to ask. And, and here's the truth. When I think about this, I'm both encouraged and frightened all at the same time. You may say, well, how are you encouraged and frightened? Well, I'm encouraged because... Even though that there may be this voice in my head that says, Chris, you're not good enough. Chris, you don't look the part. Or Chris, there's other people that are better preachers than you. There's other people that are better leaders than you. There certainly are other people that are better baseball coach than you. You know, you get this feeling like you just don't measure up, right? 
But God doesn't see the outward appearance. You don't have to look the part. God sees your heart. And there's a certain sense of encouragement there, right? He looks past all of that. But then there's also a certain level of fear associated with that. Why is there fear with that? Well, there's fear because I know what's in my heart. Anybody else relate? Like I know that I have a tendency to be unkind. I know that my heart often is selfish. I know that within this heart of mine, there's unforgiveness. I know there's within this heart of mine fear and a willing to bend the truth to get out of a jam. And so along with God seeing past my insecurities, God also sees my filth. It lays bare before him, right? That's frightening. But here's the one thing that I want you to know. That even when God sees past all the exterior and he sees your heart, he sees the junk, let me tell you what God still says. I love them. all that junk in their heart, I'm going to send my son to die for it. Oh, I see it. (laughs) Nothing is hidden from me. But I love them greatly. Do you believe that? That God loves you in spite of even the junk in your heart? If you don't believe my words, take God's words for it. My favorite verse, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't wait for you to get your act together. He doesn't wait for you to clean up your heart. See, that's God's job anyway. When we invite Jesus to be the Lord of our life, when we take ourselves off the throne of our own heart and we allow Jesus to sit where Jesus deserves to sit, then guess what he does? He says, oh, I see that part of your heart, but let me clean it up for you. Oh, I'm going to expose some areas of your life, and sometimes it's painful, but, but let me guide you through it. That's the love of God. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, you can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.